Mzanzi, Kirikoko, Dumelang, Avusheni, and hello, hi. Nolutando Ngakani here, and welcome back to Sisters Without Shame, a no-holds-bought podcast that is proudly brought to you by Health for Mzanzi. I'm here to walk with you on your health journey as you seek the answers to those weird lumps and pussy bumps you are too scared to speak about in public. This podcast, it's a safe space, baby. We have done a pretty good job in alerting the general public to the importance of diagnosing ADHD in children, and we've done fairly well in providing accurate information about the condition. But the same cannot be said about diagnosing and treating ADHD in adults. ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders with a worldwide prevalence of roughly 2.5% in adults. This week, we are joined by psychiatrist Prof. Renato Skuman, who sheds some light on ADHD in adults. Prof. Renata has been in full-time private practice since 2008. She practices as a general psychiatrist and has special interests in cognition disorders, eating disorders, mood disorders, and anxiety disorders. Let's talk about getting diagnosed with ADHD in your adulthood. So what are the warning signs of ADHD? So I think that's very important that there's not something that like adult onset ADHD. ADHD is always there since the beginning. It's a neurodevelopmental disorder, but it's often only diagnosed in adulthood. The reason for it is one, people are unaware of it. And then what happens is, they take the children to the doctor. And when the doctor takes the history of the child, they realize, oh, but that's me. And so they often then only realize that what they've been grappling with might have been ADHD. Also, because it's only more recently that it's recognized that about 60 to 70% of children with, with ADHD still can have ADHD in adulthood. So that is one thing. The second thing, in childhood and high school years, often we have very good support structures. There's a mother, there's teachers, there's a roster that you need to function of. And then when people get to university, that support fall away. And when they enter the job market, there's even less routine, less structure, less support often. And that's when they really, really start to struggle. We also see that kids that's very intelligent have a buffer. You know, they maybe don't pay attention much. But if they read once through the words, they're okay. But at the varsity or in a workplace, that's not sufficient anymore. So it's often now that we see that patients present in adulthood. The sad part is just if it was never diagnosed in childhood, usually the people that have adult ADHD presents with anxiety, depression, or substance abuse or sleep disorders. So about 87% of patients with ADHD have a comorbid disorder, anxiety or depression or whatever. And... 57 have two or more disorders, especially if it's untreated. If you treat it well, your risk for other disorders is lower. Then also, I think one of the reasons that it's missed, as you mentioned, there's still this public conception that it's hyperactive, boisterous boys. But what about the boys and girls that have inattentive type ADHD, which is the quiet daydream? Or what of the hyperactive girl that knows that she needs to sit on her hands in class not to fidget? In adulthood, we still diagnose it the same way. It's still a comprehensive assessment. It's not only a checklist or writing scales or tick boxes. And we're looking for a cluster of symptoms, different symptoms of inattentiveness, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. 
And these symptoms need to be there across a lifespan, but also across domains. It's not something that's only present at work or only present at month's end. It's there at work, at home, at church, wherever. And it must cause distress or functional impairment, either in your academic or occupational functioning, or in your emotional functioning, or in your interpersonal functioning. So if you have ADHD, it's just the way your brain has been set up. It's a genetic disorder. Therefore, the neurotransmitters in your brain, specifically in the frontal lobe, the areas of your brain that communicates with the frontal lobe, doesn't work optimally. Your brakes don't work. So you struggle to keep your focus on the task at hand, your thoughts and your body movement, and you're easily distractible and it's a constant necessity for moving. So in adulthood, that looks a bit different. You know, we don't have adults that's climbing up the furnitures anymore, but we do have workaholics or people that's engaging in extreme activity. And then also in adulthood, maybe the impulsivity is a bit different. You know, it's not like I'm butting into conversations. I might still, but maybe I'm speeding. You know, so there's also symptoms that looks a bit different in adulthood. The one thing that's just important is what we often see people that present to us that say, Dr. I have ADHD, they often do not have ADHD. They're often just sleep deprived or they do not manage the technology well or they are depressed or anxious that can also present with ADHD-like symptoms. So it's very important that when you go to someone to diagnose it, that it's someone that's well-versed with ADHD and that it's a comprehensive, thorough and long assessment. It's not something that the GP can diagnose in five or ten minutes. We also used to saying things like, oh my gosh, I'm distracted. I'm totally ADHD or like, I can't stop cleaning. I'm totally OCD. Don't they also add on to the stigmas of having these kinds of... Absolutely. It adds on to the stigma, but it also dilutes the diagnosis. So people that really have depression or people that really have ADHD, it's quite hurtful for them when people say, I'm so ADHD or... I'm so depressed, you know, having a bad day doesn't equate depression. Being sleep deprived or very excited about something and a lot going on in your environment and then you struggle to concentrate doesn't make you ADHD. Also, if you have six tabs open on your computer and two tabs or three tabs open on your cell phone and you have an iPad, obviously you're going to be distracted. You know, and that has nothing to do with ADHD. That's poor self-management. Prof, can you tell us then what are your treatment options then if you eventually find out that you have been living with ADHD all your life? If it's mild to moderate symptoms, you do not have immediately to start with medication. Medication is reserved for moderate to severe symptoms. When you have ADHD, it's important that you still look at the other things that you need to do. So you need to look at self-care, something that all of us should be doing for ourselves, making sure that you get sufficient sleep, making sure that you exercise regularly because we know if you exercise five times a week, 30 minutes, you can actually improve your concentration with up to 20%. But also to eat healthily, to avoid alcohol and other substances, all of those can have a negative effect on your ability to concentrate. The other thing that's also very important is that you need to develop skills and you need to pay attention to time management, organization, structure, using a diary, using clocks and alarms, whatever. So therapy or coaching is also a crucial part of treatment. It doesn't help we only medicate and we do not pay attention to skill development. The third aspect is medication. And in mild symptoms, if we start with meds, it's often just a natural thing like adding omega-3 and 6 to your diet or eating fresh fish regularly. So that do have benefits. But then the gold standard of treatment in moderate to severe ADHD is definitely still medication. And medication should be individualized, so it should be matched between the symptoms and the patient um, for optimal efficacy, 
but also for optimal tolerability because as any other medication, medication can have side effects. However, the medication for ADHD is extremely effective and in patients with ADHD, it's also very safe. And in South Africa, we basically have two bigger groups of medications available for ADHD. We have the stimulants and the non-stimulants. And in the stimulant group, you have two groups. You have the methylphenidate group and you have the dexamphetamine group. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of those, nor do I want to go into the details of the brands of medications. I think it's important that a patient need to discuss them, that with their service provider, their healthcare professional, to make an informed decision about what is the best match between the patient, the condition, and the medication. Often, university students will bring these medications that are used to treat ADHD to help them study, you know, are there any dangers to doing that on a regular basis? It's not recommended. And there's a few reasons therefore. The one is an ethical reason. If we're against doping in sport, why aren't we against academic doping? The second thing is, in ADHD, there is a deficiency of certain neurotransmitters. So using the medication is normalizing it. That's why it's not dangerous. But if you have sufficient neurotransmitters and you're using this medication, you will have too much of those. And that can be potentially dangerous and have more side effects. But there's also another argument that actually it's of no real benefit in patients without ADHD. It makes them a bit more awake and they feel more alert. But if we look at studies that they've conducted to see what is the real improvement, it's only about 2%. Um, on the testing, on psychological testing, and that doesn't really translate into a 2% difference on the academic test or exams. So people that use the medication when they don't have ADHD think, oh, I have my tablet in, now I can study. Now they're actually putting the effort, and that's why they improve, not primarily because of the medication. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Prof. Renatam. Now, if you are looking for more answers to ADHD in adults, visit healthformzanzi.co.za. And dear friends, remember if you are in a medical bind and looking for a shoulder to cry on, you can send an email to hello at healthformzanzi.co.za. Alternatively, hit us up on WhatsApp on 076-132-0454. I would never blue tick you babes. Self-diagnosing yourself with ADHD is a weird flex. Hyperactivity is often a major symptom of ADHD, where in children, this symptom often manifests as an inability to sit still. In classroom settings, kids might also fidget or squirm in their chairs, talk excessively, interrupt others, and always seem to be in motion. As Prof. Renata explained, this symptom looks a bit different in adults with the condition. People feel restless or unable to relax. Or they might feel tense, anxious, or on an edge. Get a proper diagnosis, Bato. Can't diagnose yourself. That brings us to the end of episode 67 of Sisters Without Shame, proudly brought to you by Health from Zanzim. From me, Lulu Ngakani, have a great week. And remember to show your girl some love by sharing this podcast with a friend.